calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thanks for joining us again. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Devin Shepard. Spooky season and werewolves go hand in hand, and it's a particular delight to share one that, in my opinion, defies expectations. What do you think, Devin? Oh, certainly. As I mentioned last week, the story brings a totally new perspective to the famous monster. Five years after a portion of the world's population inexplicably transformed into werewolves simultaneously for just three hours, the fallout is still being felt. Please enjoy Dog's Body, written by Malcolm Devlin, and voiced by James McNaughton. Gil McKenzie didn't get the job in the marketing agency on account of the fact he turned into a werewolf that one time. The rejection didn't come as a surprise. He'd been through the process often enough in the past five years. It had become almost as routine as the labouring work he took to cover the bills that had continued to stack up no matter who employed him. The interview had taken place well over a week ago, and the young woman in the grey tweed suit had not taken long to make up her mind. She'd introduced herself as Vicky, and of the three panellists, she'd been both the youngest and the least susceptible to his desperate charm. Unlike her colleagues, she hadn't laughed at any of his jokes about the gaps in his employment history, and when she turned over the diversity form to examine it in greater depth, he registered how her eyes scanned it, mechanically switching left and right until she hit the small checkbox on the bottom left of the page. Gill knew the wording by heart. On November 17th, 2010, were you affected by lunar proximity syndrome? A little superscript asterisk pointed to a lengthy paragraph of small print at the foot of the page, a promise that an affirmative answer would not invalidate the chances of employment, a warning that a dishonest one would lead to disqualification. He'd completed the form while waiting in the reception area, and his pen hovered over the checkbox. 
The weekend tabloids were full of angry stories about once upright employees having lied about not being LPS. And while the articles focused on how they'd been caught out and punished for their transgressions, to Gill, they demonstrated it was possible to game the system, at least for a spell. But Jackson and Broom was too big a company to be careless. They would have access to the government register, and as such, the question seemed cruel. It felt like a dare. With a flick of his pen, he told the truth, and he remembered how Vicky's eyes sharpened, and how she'd looked at him anew, staring into him as though she could perceive the monster he'd briefly been, still hiding under his human skin. Then she'd promised they'd be in touch, in such an abrupt tone it took the other panelists by surprise. One week later, and he was standing in the narrow hallway at the entrance to the block of flats where he lived, holding the letter he'd been surprised to find waiting for him in his mailbox. He held it closed. One week was enough time to make him wonder if he'd misjudged them. Maybe they had a quota they needed to fill. Maybe Vicky's expression hadn't been one of horror, but one of fascination. Maybe they wanted him because he'd changed. He tore open the envelope. We regret to inform you, etc., etc. The date on the top of the letter was the same as the day he'd attended the interview, and it was only when he examined the envelope more closely that he saw it was addressed to flat 12 rather than flat 12A. They hadn't wasted any time, but Rob next door had. It didn't matter now. The envelope was open, the letter read. Its promise was already spent. Gil tore both into pieces and crumpled the fragments in his fists. He held them over the paper basket on the floor beneath the mailboxes and let them fall, spinning like broken sycamore seeds. He stopped in Charmin's on Legerman Road for a pack of Marlboro Reds, and as Charmin himself hunted through the back room in search of fresh packs of lighters, Gill caught sight of himself in the reflective glass of the cabinet behind the counter, where the bottles of whiskey and rum were kept locked in the mornings like a holding cell. It alarmed him how quickly he'd become comfortable with his sight clothes. His grey tracksuit pants, the khaki zip-up hoodie, now forever tangled with the high-vis vest. It was a brisk November morning, and he was dressed warmly with a beanie and an extra layer he'd end up peeling off as the day wore on. His face was lean and ruddy, and the beard he'd grown in a conscious attempt to look less like an office drone suited him now he'd grown into it, even if it was greyer than he'd have preferred. The neatness he'd trimmed into it for the interview was growing out, and he didn't look like the experienced and capable marketing executive his curriculum vitae still described him as. He shuffled idly through the tabloids stacked on the counter. Most had something about the anniversary, but it was the same not-quite news the media had been peddling since the event five years earlier. Old stories repeated with limited hindsight, the same hypothetical questions asking what was being done to keep everyone safe, and a few inevitable column inches about Chrissy Lindemann's upcoming appeal. Some lip service was paid to some unlikely new theories to explain what happened, a genetic disorder, blood disease, aliens, but none had anything new to say. 
he leafed through the pages and recognized some of the photographs inside. Familiar stills of sleeping monsters, incongruous in offices, underground platforms, town squares. Charmin returned red-faced and panting. He slammed two shrink-wrapped slabs of plastic lighters down on the counter. He was close to retirement and looked like a man who found the gradient steepening now the summit was in sight. We got stars or spots, he said when he got his breath back. What's the difference? Gil said. No difference, Charmin said. Except one's got stars on them, the other lot have spots. Gil tapped the top package. I'll have a couple of those. Stars it is then, Charmin said. I did have some with stripes on them a while back, but they were a bad batch, tended to flare up, and I'd have people in complaining how they took their eyebrows off. Stars is good. Charmin tore open the packaging and rang up the till. Stars it is, he said again. What happened to the window? Gil gestured at the board taped up over a broken pane on the door. Charmin shrugged and pushed a few coins in change across the stack of newspapers. The usual drunken animals, he said. On this street, a good night is one I don't get woken by the sound of broken glass. Grisham set Gil to work for the morning, painting the plywood hoardings that masked the site from Mendel Road. Doesn't have to look good, Grisham said. Just has to look clean. And mind how you drip on the pavement. The council will have us otherwise. Grisham was one of the older supervisors. High-vis anorak zipped up to his grey walrus moustache. He left Gill with a can of industrial grey-blue, the building company's brand colour, and Gill spent the morning painting his way from the corner of Burry Street to the remains of the bookies at the top of Mendel Road, which looked cleaved in half by an enormous blade. At Muirhouse and Partners, where he'd worked for six years, he'd often sat at his desk in the bright open-plan office and pored over brand proposals submitted by agencies. The pedantry of logo placements, typefaces, and pantone numbers fascinated him. Now here he was with a bucket of brand to apply in person. No longer a swatch on a page, but a tin of pure corporate pigment that spattered like buckshot across his tracksuit trousers. It was clean theory made practical. He felt like a disgraced officer sent to die on the front line. Like most of the jobs he was given on the site, it was dull, repetitive work. But anything which put some distance between him and the apprentices was a job worth taking. They were young and rowdy, getting trained up for the beginning of their careers. They knew his story, or some variant of it. To them, he was old and cast out of his career, forced to start further down the ladder from where they found themselves. In other words, he was fair game, and there was nothing he could do about it. The last site the agency had him working was a series of low-rise office blocks out past the ring road. Now he was on a crew building, the new multi-story behind the Kroner Center. It was a big job, 15 months or so, and Grisham assured the laborers there'd be work for them for the best of it. This was good news, but its location in town increased the likelihood Gill might run into people he knew, or worse, people he once worked with. 
he was sure he'd seen Stephanie once. There'd been something about the way she walked through a crowd that seemed so familiar to him. He felt like he was seeing her as strangers saw her, and the thought made him feel uncomfortably like a voyeur. He'd stepped well out of sight until he was sure she was gone. But it wasn't so bad on the site now he was used to it. He knew his place as an unskilled laborer, and everyone else knew it too. He was expected to do as he was told and do it as efficiently as he could, but no one really expected him to excel, and that was liberating. He was mostly there to carry materials and equipment, to screw in fixtures, to clear rubble, to sweep up the detritus at the end of the day. Occasionally, he almost convinced himself that he'd grown comfortable with the work over two years. Even when it rained, he told himself, he liked the fact they just ploughed on regardless. When Gil was a kid, his father would pick him up on alternate weekends. A painter and decorator with his own modest company, his father owned a stubby little van that was thick with plaster dust, its smell sharp and dry, with paint and turpentine. His overalls would be stuffed in the footwell of the passenger seat, and the ladder would be angled over the seat, forcing Gil to crouch to fit in. He'd resented it at the time. The van, the smell, that desperate, over-eager smile, all come to drag him away from his comfortable home in the well-manicured suburbs. When he was a little older, and the school holidays were feeling shorter than they used to, his father would sometimes take him to sites he was working on, and to Gil's embarrassment, he'd call him his mate and pretend he was one of the lads he employed. Even then, Gil felt like a fraud. He would try to maintain the complex illusion he knew what he was doing, but the swagger, the surly insolence, and the estuary vowels were all affront. He got the impression his father was proud of him. He'd laugh and ruffle his hair as they walked back to his van, but Gil never felt he deserved it. And when he saw his mother's face when he got back home, he remembered how he didn't want to deserve it either. On Mendel Road, Gil worked briskly and without complaint, shifting his set of steps along with him as he progressed, leaving a trail of cones, demarcating his work. Later, as he was stringing up yellow and black tape to secure the area, he watched as a man in a neatly tailored suit veered towards the glistening hoardings, distracted by his phone. Instinctively, Gil called out to him. Watch what you're doing, he said. Wet paint. The man glanced back, his course correcting absently, as though he didn't quite take the warning seriously. He didn't seem to see Gil at all, seeing only another scruffy workman in a hard hat and boots. But Gil was appalled to have drawn his attention. It was Mark Jefferson, who used to work in the finance department at Morehouse. They'd been in the same meetings, the same presentations, the same awkward conference parties and bland hotels. But if Jefferson recognized Gill, he made no indication. Gill stared after him as he folded into the crowds and disappeared. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.
If you ask me, said Graham, of whom no one had asked anything at all. They should ship them all off to an island somewhere. Only real way to be sure. He glanced up over the top of his copy of The Sun and nodded towards Gill. No offence, he added. None taken, Gill said. Get me something with a sea view or a penthouse. I'll have one of those. There was a murmur of amusement in the hut, but Graham frowned. He was the oldest of the laborers, salt and pepper hair trimmed to an even fuzz over his scalp and chins. He didn't really have a face suited to smiling, so the frown was hard to judge. I'm not joking, he said. To be clear, Myro said. Would this be the same island where you want to put all the gays? He grinned, his facade of innocence falling with a clang. And where would you put the gay werewolves? Would they get dual citizenship? Graham's scowl was unambiguous. He clambered to his feet, slapping the paper down on his chair. Fuck you, you gobby gypsy cunt, he said. He jammed a cigarette in the corner of his mouth and barged out the door, sparking the lighter he held in his fist. Myro sat back in his chair, beaming. He was a stocky figure, a wide-eyed face beneath spiky black hair. His grey sweatshirt was printed with the album sleeve of the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen. He only wore it because it pissed Graham off. You know, Myra said, if gypsies get their own island, I might see if I can sign up. Although my mother would never speak to me again. When it comes to gypsies, she's worse than he is. On the other side of the room, Otto bobbed his head in agreement. He was slimmer than Myro. His patchy hair shaved tight, so it looked like the shadows of continents mapped on a tall, distorted globe. Well, they are all thieves, he said, studying the tea swirling in his plastic cup. Otto, I'm not joking either, he said. Where I come from, they're all thieves. You see them coming into town, you lock your door. Don't give me a look like that. You don't have them here, but everyone has someone to lock the doors to. What do you have here? Scousers? The Irish, am I right? Romanians, Gil said. Fuck right off, said Otto. He aimed a kick at Gil's shin, but Gil shifted out of the way. Still grinning, Myro picked up Graham's paper and refolded it to the front page. There was another blurry picture of a monster. It still surprised Gill how few decent photographs there seemed to be of the event. Most were low-resolution mobile phone shots or unspecific security footage. The most famous one was the businessman in the empty tube car slumped on his seat, his now enormous head awkwardly jammed against the partition beside him. His stockbroker's suit was in tatters, unable to contain the new bulk of him. He was all teeth and snout and tail. There were outcrops of bristly fur punching through the remains of his silk shirt and bear claws breaching the perfect uppers of his patent leather shoes. The sun went with something else for their front page. Uncharacteristically avoiding the celebrity angle and opting for the political instead, they'd chosen the picture of the former Labour MP Kevin Wilkes, splayed out and transformed on the floor of the House of Commons. The picture was too grainy to make out many details, snapped by some fleeing backbencher with his smartphone. The headline was typically flippant. Animal House, it read. The subtitle was more pretentious, 
In stark, bold letters, it promised, it will happen again. Inevitable, it says here, Myro said. Gil snorted. Bullshit, he said. Well, I guess we'll find out tomorrow. Myro turned the page, and a photograph of Chrissy Lindemann stared back. Blonde curls, big-chinned, a look of dangerous defiance in her eyes. Gil turned away. For a moment, he felt as though she was looking straight at him from the page. Bullshit, he said again. And tomorrow doesn't mean anything. Why would it happen at the same time? Like it keeps a diary, makes no fucking sense. Otto nodded. But this time the moon is full, he said. The moon's got nothing to do with it, Gil said. You know why they call it lunar proximity syndrome? Because they don't know what else to blame. No other reason. It's as if when science doesn't fit, people turn to the movies for an explanation instead. It's bullshit. There was a pause. The clock ticked closer towards quarter past. So are you working tomorrow? Myro said, his face all innocent again. Gil scowled at him. Grisham thinks it's best I stay at home, he said. What are you going to do? Lock yourself in a cage somewhere? Nah, mate, Gil said. I'm going to sit in my wife fronts and jack off to loose women. Myro looked at him, perfectly deadpan. Never let it be said that you English have no class. Gil raised his tea. Amen, he said. Ha ho, Wolfman! The voice was a high-pitched whine, but it was the accompanying whistle that made Gil look up. He straightened and leaned on the yard brush. Three of the apprentices were standing near the hut. The one in the middle was thin and pasty white, his clothes hanging off him to the extent they almost pulled on the floor at his feet. He wore a trucker's cap backwards on his head, but it mostly served to emphasize how narrow his features were. But he was smirking through his glistening acne at Gill, an electric sparkle in the pits of his eyes. All right, Gil said. You're feeling yourself, Wolfman? Ollie's hand cupped his groin, his laugh a reedy, grating sound. His friends laughed with him, Troy on one side, Benny on the other. They sounded like a tone-deaf a cappella trio. Doing good, Ollie, Gil said. Doing good. Valuable work you're up to there, man, Troy said. Nearly twice the size of Ollie, Troy looked as though he'd been hastily built with a surplus of something denser and thicker than the concrete foundations they stood on. Well, he's got that expensive education, hasn't he? Ollie said. Degrees and shit. So Grisham only sets him to work on the best there is. He's earned it, man. University of cleaning shit up. Must have been crap at it, Benny said, dropping his sandwich wrapper at his feet. He keeps missing bits. Benny was lanky and Jim lean, his features tense and wired. He was the sort of kid who wore his athleticism as though it might be a weapon. Troy grinned and threw the plastic Coke bottle he'd been drinking from so it spun across the site. Go on, boy, he said. Fetch. Laughing and whooping, they set off back across the site and Benny threw his head back and howled, which only set Troy off again. They hadn't got far when Ollie broke away and swaggered back to Gil. 
Hey, Wolfman, Ollie said. Check it. He glanced around him to confirm they weren't being observed, then fished in the back of his work trousers and pulled out a short-bladed hunting knife, blade bright and serrated. Tomorrow, he said, when the moon comes out and all you freaks turn into whatever the fuck. Me and my boys are heading out and we're going to cut ourselves a wolf skin. He turned the blade so it grinned toothily in the light. How's that sound to you? Guess you better hope they don't wake up this time, Gil said. You might need bigger bulls, starting a fight with something that could fight back. Ollie blinked, dead eyes, humor gone. The knife dipped in his hand, point down towards Gil's crotch. Oh, he said, I'll take their bulls and all. Well, if that's your thing, I guess. What did you say to me? I said, fuck off, Ollie, Gil said. Haven't you got a wall to build? Ollie froze, his stare dull and empty, the knife unwavering in his hand. Gil wondered how quickly he could move the broom. He could probably knock the boy's legs out from under him if he was fast enough. He wondered where the knife would land. Grisham's voice called Ollie's name from across the yard, and, as though he'd been in a trance, Ollie pocketed the knife and backed away his lip curling. Coming for you first, Wolfman, he said. Gil didn't say anything. He kept hold of the broom a long while after the boy had gone. Gil was about to leave for the day when Grisham called him over. Decent work today on the hoardings, he said. Although to Gil it sounded like he wasn't comfortable with the compliment. It wasn't work that could easily be done wrong. It didn't need any validation, and they both knew it. Any word back from that job you went for? Gil winced, glancing away, and Grisham sucked his teeth and shook his head. Shame, he said. Well, you're off for a few days, but when you're back, I was thinking I might hand you over to Hamley, if you're keen. He's working on the Yarrow Road offices at the moment. Said he was looking for some new lads. Gil frowned. Hamley was a contractor, a painter and decorator with his own boys. Gil had seen them around on the last site he'd worked, but he hadn't really spoken to them. Just a brief nod as he passed them, lined up in their whites, finishing their morning coffees. You're too old for an apprenticeship, Grisham said. But Hamley said he'd be up for trying to get you some on-the-job training, if you're interested. He did? Gil frowned. Bulky, thuggish, forearms spidered-webbed with homemade tattoos, Hamley didn't quite fit Gill's idea of a philanthropist. Grisham shrugged. He knew your old man, he said. They used to work together. Went back years, they did. When Hamley figured who you were and, you know, what you were, well, he was right put out. Said he wants to do good by your dad, you know. Said your dad was always good to him, and he wouldn't be where he was without him. So he wants to pay that back in some way. Grisham spread his hands. And seeing as you're not getting anything else in those interviews you go and do. If this has anything to do with that thing with Ollie, nothing to do with Ollie. The lad's a punk, but he'll straighten out in time. They usually do. Grisham scratched the back of his head. This is me playing nice. 
pays in this trade to see when people are doing you a favor and not be a complete tit about it. Gil lowered his head. He knew this sort of talk didn't come easy to Grisham. He'd known him for two years now, and it was the most he'd ever heard him say. Cheers, Gil said. And as I was saying, Grisham said, you did an all right job with the hoardings, so it kind of makes sense. I mean, your dad was a craftsman, one of the best I knew. Really good he was. Maybe he passed some of it on to you. Would be a crying shame if his skills died with him, wouldn't it? Gill's smile stiffened. I suppose you're right, he said. Grisham nodded and turned away. So next Monday, he said, go to Yarrow Road and look up Hamley. I'll have a word with the agency, they'll shuffle the paperwork. Hamley will show you what's what. Be on time, mind, he doesn't like any fucking about that one. He glanced up at Gill again. You look like your dad, you know, he said. You might take after him yet. About halfway down Brook Street, Gill realized he wanted to get drunk. Autopilot set him on a course back to his flat, out past the bus station. But now, surrounded by the tide of early evening pedestrian traffic, he stopped in the middle of the pavement to give the thought more room. He dug out his pack of reds and lit one. It was Thursday, and almost everyone without LPS would be working the next morning. If this was his last day as a human, as the papers were keen to imply, he wondered how he should spend it. He dug out his phone and paged through his contacts. He'd seen his mother a few weekends back, one of those awkward Sunday dinners where he'd sat at the end of the table, feeling like he was intruding, while his half-brothers, ten and fourteen, and smug with it, had screamed and thrown vegetables at each other. Her mobile phone was off, so he tried the house number and got the answer machine. It was Jeff's voice, and the recording made him sound even more nasal. None of the family were in right now, his message said, and the way he said family sounded pointed and exclusive. Gil hung up without leaving a message. Jeff was in plastics, but not in the way Gil's father was in paint. Jeff's job came with a new BMW every six months and a company card to cover the fuel. Gil had been nine when his mother remarried, and he and Jeff ground away at each other until they no longer got in each other's way. What's he like? his real dad asked when he picked him up one weekend. Gil shrugged. He's all right, he said. It was supposed to be non-committal, but he noticed how his dad couldn't look at him, concentrating too fiercely on the road, as though it might suddenly convulse and throw them off at any moment. I mean, he's a dick, obviously, Gil added. But it was too little, too late, to salvage anything more than a brief smile. Sure he is, his dad said. Jeff wasn't really a dick. He had no idea how to talk to the son he'd acquired, but he treated Gil's mother with a respect she wasn't used to. She was happy with her new family. She was doing it right this time, and Gil had no wish to get in the way. He put his phone away. New plan. He could just go to the volunteer and get hammered. He tossed the cigarette to the drain and cut down the alley beside the newsagents, 
crossing through the car park and slipping back out onto the main drag. Girl! The voice came from one of the side streets and sounded familiar enough to make Gil stop to hunt down its source. A figure was jogging towards him, a slim man in a long tweed coat and a flat cap. Tobin, he said. Jesus, I almost didn't recognize you. Where's the rest of you? Tobin grinned and stuck out an elegantly gloved hand. Gil shook it awkwardly. Tash has got me on a diet, Tobin said, thumping his stomach. Plus, I'm hitting the gym these days. Since that thing happened, everyone's working on their cardio. Just in case you all go crazy again, give us a head start. Gil blinked, which made Tobin bark with laughter. I'm screwing with you, he said. Jesus, well, you're always so sensitive. How are you doing? You're a hard man to get hold of. I tried calling, emailing, but... Gil looked at the floor. Oh, he said. You know, I got a new phone. After he got out of quarantine, he'd cut himself off from most of his colleagues at Muirhouse. He didn't know which of them had given his name to the authorities. It could have been anyone, maybe even someone who'd witnessed him stumbling home in ragged clothes. He still remembered the knock at the door, the black van, the dull sinking feeling he'd been betrayed. Tobin looked oblivious. Off the grid, huh? He said. Yeah, I get that. Well, I caught you. I win. Prize is that I get to buy you a pint. Does that sound good to you? He glanced down at Gil's clothes, his expression critical enough to make Gil feel his cheeks turn pink like he'd been caught red-handed in fancy dress. Well, he said, I was heading to the volunteer. The volunteer? Tobin pantomimed his disgust with a spluttering noise. The where bar? Fuck that. We're going to the bank. They got cocktails, and I'm getting you a cocktail. Tobin. Tobin put a hand on Gil's shoulder. Gil, he said, if you stay scared to horses, you'll never get back in the saddle. What? Something my mum used to say, Tobin said. Actually, no, I'm fucking with you again. I just made it up. Sort of thing she would say, though. Right, said Gil. I've missed you, man, said Tobin. You have the best what the fuck are you on about expressions, and my life has been poorer without them. You never used to be the sort to turn down a cocktail, Tobin said slopping a pint of IPA across the table. I'm planning on a long one this evening, Gil said. I figure it's best to drink sensible when you're sober, if you're going to drink stupid when you're drunk. You and my mum would get on, Tobin said. He raised his mojito, and they clinked glasses. Gil's glass was chilled, so the beer was too cold. He could barely taste it, but something satisfying connected. Self-conscious, he wiped the foam from his moustache with the back of his hand and glanced across the floor. Even for a Thursday evening, the old bank was dense with lawyers, brokers, marketing executives, whatever the hell they were. The air was thick with day-old deodorant masked with too much aftershave, but there was piss and spilt beer in the mix too. A reminder that while the pretensions of the clientele may have been lofty, the bank's purpose was the same as any other pub in the town. Gil hadn't been there since he'd worked at Muehlhaus, and he was keenly aware he looked out of place. 
He caught some of the younger men staring at him with unmasked hostility, but when he met their looks with an unwavering, dead-eyed gaze of his own, they turned away again, and this made him feel oddly pleased with himself. I saw Jefferson this morning, Gill said. I called after him, but he didn't recognize me. Tobin cocked his head. Well, he's head of finance these days, he said. He doesn't know anyone unless they've got the queen's head on them. Gill whistled. They made him head of something, he said. Big shake-up since you left, Tobin said. Let's see. Ahmed, remember him? Ahmed Farah. He's doing okay. The man's a machine, and they'd be a fool to keep ignoring him. But you know the shit I've had to put up with from the old men up top? Same deal. Oh, but Kima just got promoted. She's an account manager now, so that's a thing at least. He stirred his cocktail. The mint leaves swirled. And Stephanie? Gill said. Stephanie's still there, Tobin said. Made an impression with her handling of the Dooley account. Got her some high-profile fans. She's going places. Gill wasn't going to say anything. Then he said, How is she? Tobin smiled awkwardly. She's good, he said. They drank in silence for a moment. The old bank was a grand-looking establishment. Its brightly painted, vaulted ceiling was supported by ostentatious pillars, and the room was separated into private alcoves by wrought iron dividers. The bar was a circular counter in the middle, and above it, flat-screen televisions showed the highlights from some lower league game, to which no one was paying attention. So what about you? Tobin said. I'm no longer in marketing, Gill said. I figured. Are you looking anywhere? Gill nodded. Had an interview last week. And? The job part was great, Gill said. The are you now or have you ever been bit, not so much. Tobin stared at him, wide-eyed. Seriously, he said. They turned you down because of that. Had dozens of interviews over the years. They all end the same way. Can they do that? Maybe I'd exceed their insurance premium. Change again. Go crazy, you know. Shit, I'd no idea. Gil shrugged. Why did you think I got fired from Muirhouse? He said. Oh, I don't know, Tobin said. They said the government had you all locked up somewhere. Like you'd got together and robbed a bank or something. They called it a quarantine facility, but it may as well have been a jail. They set these things up in a hurry, you know. It was one of those detention centers they set up for immigrants, a pop-up prison up in Kingston. Gill spread his hands. I mean, this was when they thought we might change again straight away, so I guess there were good reasons behind it. Next time we might not all stay asleep, that was the fear. It was in the public interest that we were put somewhere safe. So they lock us all up, scan us for serotonin, excess testosterone, the warrior gene, all that crap. No correlation. Makes no sense. Drives them up the wall. Six months go by and nothing happens. And now we're a waste of taxpayers' money. Tabloids found something else to moan about, and we were just a bunch of confused people living in dorms, getting fat. You don't look fat. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Again, they measured the silence with drink, 
and Gil was conscious he was drinking too fast. You working tomorrow, Tobin said. Gil shook his head. He made curly finger quotes with his hands. Holiday, he said. I got an official letter advising me to lock my doors and stay inside, preferably alone. Think it'll happen again. Gil shook his head. It's all a PR exercise. Some merry dance to placate the idiots who wanted to know why they didn't do more last time round. Tobin turned his glass around idly. Well, he said, the anniversary isn't really about you. No offense, but you don't know how frightening it was back then. I had other things on my mind, Gil said. That wasn't strictly true. From his perspective, the event had passed as a heavy, dreamless void. He may as well have been struck on the back of the head with a shovel. In the office, you fell close to where I was sitting, Tobin said. I had a front row seat. First I thought you were having a seizure. Then there were other people shouting for a first aider to come over. But they were calling from other parts of the office because it was happening there too. Crazy. He smiled, as though the memory was now too preposterous to take seriously. And it was like everyone saw how strange it was at the same time. It was like we all collectively saw the bigger picture, and it was frightening. Gil stared into his pint. And then we changed, he said. He'd heard this story before. Damnedest thing, Tobin said. Gil swallowed the remains of his pint and stood up. And three hours later, we all turned back, he said. Another one? He gestured with his empty glass. Tobin reached for his wallet. Let me, he said. Fuck off, Gil said. I got paid today. He took the few steps down to the main floor of the bar and steered his way through the crowd. He felt drunker than he had any right to be. He was conscious he hadn't eaten anything since the pack of sandwiches he'd polished off at noon. There was a bit of a crush at the bar, but one of the benefits of being the scruffy one in the crowd of suits, one with steel toe caps at that, was that he didn't care if he was mussed or spilled or trodden on. He picked his way forward with a bullish confidence, turning like a dancer to avoid the drinks being carried the other way. He didn't have to wait long to get served. Pint of IPA, he said, and one of the cocktails, small one, with leaves in it. Mojito? Yeah, let's have one of them. The barmaid smiled, a delicate little expression, and poured the beer first. He started on it, and while she set about mixing the cocktail, he looked about him. Everyone seemed so young, and in a strange way, they reminded him of the apprentices on the site. Fired up, boisterous, and painfully keen. They were all learning their trade, securing their place in the world with their first increasingly confident steps. They each assumed themselves locked on a path to a particular future and couldn't imagine how circumstance could drive them off course. Gil sighed. They didn't know it yet but they were all in training to become as old and cynical as he was. Someone jostled him from behind, and he turned to see a young man in an expensive-looking suit. Nearly interchangeable from his peers, this one was pale and lanky, with a floppy blonde fringe, and was making an effort to wedge his way forward to the bar. 
The youth's eyes were already slightly unfocused, and for some reason, this only darkened Gil's humor further. He looked a little like Ollie, the same high cheekbones and pitted eyes, the same curl of the lip. Glowering, Gil could feel something stubborn and combative brewing deep within him, and he welcomed it, tensing up to make himself a solid, immovable obstacle. He could almost hear the whine of annoyance from behind him. The barmaid set the cocktail on the bar. The round cost more than twice what he'd expected, so when he turned back with his drinks, his mood had blackened further. The young suit tried to strong-arm him out the way. When you're done, he said, there's a blockage in the gents that needs fixing. His voice was as reedy and imperious as his appearance, but there was a trace of an accent there too, betraying a background Gil hadn't expected. Gil stared him down, and when he spoke, his voice came out with enough resonance to quieten the room. I'm too sober to start a fight, kid, so back off. Fight? the kid spluttered. I was just making a joke. Why would you do that? Because you're a cunt, Gil said, and a broken nose might give you some character. He didn't wait for a response. Beyond a startled look, he couldn't ever imagine seeing on Ollie. Instead, he barged past, and the kid lurched out of his path with a gratifying whimper, stumbling into someone else and causing a minor chain reaction of chaotic alarm, like a herd of wildebeest sensing the presence of a lion. There were still raised voices by the time Gil was back at the table. What kept you? Tobin said. He craned his head around the metal fence to see what the commotion was. Gil grunted, setting the drinks on the table. You might want to down that, he said. I'm not sure we're still welcome. Tobin stared at him, then spluttered with laughter. Still got the touch, he said. We've got to leave it there, but never fear. Part two of Dog's Body is coming in our next episode. In the meantime, it would mean the world to us if you could post a five-star review for our show wherever you're listening to us right now. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 94, features Dog's Body, part one, by Malcolm Devlin. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Asadolahi. 
Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Devin Shepard. Performed by James McNaughton. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.